2: Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match
0: podcast.
1: Before we start the podcast, we had the extraordinary opportunity to catch up with Spurs boss Mauricio Pochettino uh, to discuss with him his time at Tottenham Hotspur when he took over there, the project he's building now, and a possible power shift in North London. Let's take a listen to what he had to say.
3: Listen, lad, I built this kingdom up from nothing. When I started here, all I was was swamp. Well, the king said I was daft to build a castle on a swamp, but
0: I built it all the same, just to show him it sank into the swamp. So I built a second one that sank into the swamp. So I built a third one that burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. No power shift
4: anymore.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the power shift was short-lived it. Eh?
1: This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at uh North London is indeed red. Uh, Ar- Ar- Arsenal are uh, the villains of the piece, of course, for their social media presence. We will get to that maybe just a little bit. Uh, Mesut Ozil sipping his tea and, in doing so, rustling the entirety of uh, the English media. So that was great. Um, Tim is here. You can find him on Twitter, at Stilberto. And if you find him there, you will find him swatting away journalists who are complaining about the club's social media account. Hello, Tim. <laughs> Hello there, uh, Paul is here. He's on Twitter at in my pants. He is probably swatting someone away, but not journalists. Hello, Paul. We've got Ozil,
4: messed Ozil. I just don't think you understand.
1: Do, do, do you have like a, a witty finish for that? Because I was letting you do it. And you didn't He's have to. He's
4: Arsene Wenger's man. Yeah. He's better the, than Zidane. No, we, we, We've got Mess Ozil.
1: Okay, well, yeah, we, that's true. Right, moving on. Uh, so, we also uh really special guest today uh, and very excited to have him on. You probably know him better from the uh, Arscast that featured Ian Wright, but uh, he is here nonetheless. It is Clive. You can find him on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive.
2: Hello, hello. How are you?
1: Good, thanks for slumming it with us. Uh, Paul, it's just you and me, bud. Um, Scott, Scott, he'll be here. He uh, he writes for the Short Fuse uh, SB Nation now. Uh, Tim has a regular column on the Ars, Ars blog and Ars cast, and Clive's an Ars cast guest, and you and I can just hide under a bridge jacking each other off and talking about Arsenal. So, I've I got nowhere else to go. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, so great day of football, Derby Day, 2-0 victory. Um talk of a power shift can be left for another day uh and then that day it will also not be true but we'll start at the beginning and tim um we sort of had a lot of opinions uh some not necessarily in agreement but that's okay about the lineup he picked for city but today strong as possible 11 and um mustafi restored to the side any surprise that he did this um and what did you think of the decision to go with this group
3: Uh, No, not really. I think um, Mustafi started training the day before the Manchester City game. Um, So, I mean, he possibly, in the case of a crisis, could have even played that game. But it was probably quite smart just to leave him back, take him out of the internationals. Um, And I think it's quite significant, actually, that in this international break, we didn't have that many players away. And a lot of the ones that did go away kind of came back quite early. I think it was only Ozil and Lacazette weren't back by Monday. So Arsenal had a really nice long lead-in time for this game. And, you know, Mustafi been training for a couple of weeks. I think Welbeck as well came back into training about two weeks ago. So, um, you know, from a fitness point of view, but also from a tactical point of view, to hatch a bit of a plan for this game, Arsenal had some time with his players. And uh, I, I don't think there was ever any doubt that Mustafi was going to start because... With two weeks of full training behind him And probably some time off in there as well Somewhere He probably would have been in um, pretty fine fettle, And I think we saw that with his performance on the pitch For me there was just There was absolutely no doubt That he was going to go with, uh, with that front three um, Why not? And I'm sure Well I'm sure we'll get kind of into this later But um, the last few times we've played Tottenham We tend to try and bypass the midfield And um, unfortunately, in the past, we tried to do that just by booting the ball up to Olivier Giroud. And uh, kind of fortunately, he was injured. So that temptation was taken away. And uh, I think this was the first time we really understood how to use Lacazette. Um, The first time we used him really properly, I think, and really kind of um, both played to his strengths and his strengths... Like he didn't look like a new player in the team for the first time you know it looked like um, everyone un- understood what he was doing and he understood what everyone else was doing and also I think Arsenal tend to play well against teams with back threes and Pochettino I think made a massive error by playing a back three um, and we managed to isolate them really really well and I mean I, I can't imagine I don't care but I can't imagine what was going through Pochettino's head because the front three is really the only part of the Arsenal team that you know you could say has at least the potential to function at the elite level Um everywhere else we can kind of muddle through or get by but that front three is the only truly kind of this could be you know elite level kind of partnership um, that we've got and they kind of decided to isolate their back three against our front three which I think was um a stupid mistake that I'm really, really thankful for. Um but I, I think definitely at home as well. I thought um you know you the thing is with Spurs and I know Clive said this a lot, you've got to move them about, um, really and, and it, it looked like Arsenal understood that for the first time. And the best chance you've got of moving them about is playing that front three. Not just because it's the best front three we've got, but um it's it's kind of I think it's it's the most um it's the most kind of bombastic, for want of a better word. It's the one that pulls you all over the place. And Eric Dyer's not a fantastic centre-back. He slots into the back three as a kind of, you know, for convenience, really. Um, and he's, But he's not a brilliant defender if you kind of get him running backwards, as we saw for the second goal. So I really thought, particularly at home, there was just no chance we weren't going to go with that front three. Um and yeah, to be honest the rest of the team kind of picks itself really at this yeah. stage yeah that's fair. Um, may maybe Welbeck might have been a temptation, but i didn't I didn't see that happening particularly because you know he's just come back from injury, and this was a this was always going to be an intense game that was going to demand a lot of effort um so yeah i I wasn't surprised I would have been surprised by any other lineup, put it that way,
1: yeah, and I think the interesting thing about this game is that. You know, usually nerves lead to a game being a little bit fractious, maybe lacking uh, cohesion, lacking a rhythm or a pattern. And while I don't think um, our build-up was sort of, you know, typical, and we'll come to how we built up, and Clive, I'll get to you in just a moment on that. But, Paul, one of the things that I think was really interesting, against City, one of the things that was frustrating was how long it took us to move the ball, how the individuals tried to carry the ball past the press, how our passing wasn't precise and slick and quick, Um, and that's sort of been a problem all season and what really impressed me and in particular with Bellerin and Kolasinac was how quickly they were moving the ball how precise the passing was how uh, ready we were to play on the first or second touch and that really made a difference in terms of getting out Uh, what do you attribute that to do you think it was just better performance or do you think there was something about where the players were positioned that gave them more of an ability to play out than they did against City
4: well I really think uh, you, you, can, you can interestingly compare and contrast this with City, but one of the very clear distinctions were with our front three, we had Lacazette and Sanchez on the shoulder regularly waiting for the ball over the top. And there were a lot of no-look balls over the top uh, from all sorts of players and, and from quite early on. Cashel needed one, Ramsey, Mustafi. Um, So it was clearly a tactic. The other no-luck tactic was the switching play from one side to the other, where uh, we accepted they were going to have an overload in the midfield, pushing to wherever the ball was. And, you know, we saw time and time again, especially with Sanchez, the no-luck switch of play up the other side, which we have seen to some degree in previous games, but this was automatic. The other thing you see is, uh, check every ball long. No kind of Neuer impersonations at the back, trying to, you know, suck in a defender. Uh, there's some very clear uh, situations where he actually has the the pass open to say Montreal, and he eschews it and banks it straight up field. Because again, kind of no luck. It's just instinct, instinctive, reactive. It's also very interesting when you watch the start of a game. Um, you can kind of say, well, how are how are we coming out with our mindset? And even in the second half, the first thing that happens is a no look pass into that top right corner. It's actually Kalasinajc who's up there, but it doesn't matter. Had it been Sanchez, Kalasinajc, Lacazette, it doesn't matter. The ball, that's where they that was their out ball. Uh, there's a they knock it straight back to check a, a, a seconds later. Czech boots it straight up field, even though Monreal and Kolasinac are wide open. So there was a very clear template, uh, as you alluded to, to hollow out the midfield and just play across it, over it, around it. And uh, it seems, uh, I guess what I took out of it was an acceptance of the strengths of our midfield and the weaknesses of our midfield and to not tempt fate. And it was a very decided contrast to the
1: the City game. Yeah, and we seemed really uh, determined not to give them space, You know, to, not just to press. I mean, obviously that is yeah. pressing, but to make sure that we didn't drop off them when they collected the ball in midfield and give them the space to play those runs in behind. And we've seen Arsenal do that in other games, but do it for five minutes or ten minutes. You know, if you remember the City game, we actually came out of the box really well, but yeah. that energy sort of receded. And... Eventually, they started to play their way around it. That never really happened in this game. Clive, I do want to talk about the decision to bypass the midfield. The first thing I just want to ask you is sometimes pattern of play can be misinterpreted as intention, as plan. Um, It seems that we had the intention of bypassing midfield. Do you believe that was the plan or do you believe that was what was available to us and that the players were just sort of solving the problem on the pitch?
2: I'd like to think it was a bit of both, actually. Um, it's one of the good things about <laughs> studying football now and being you know, looking online. We can all get great information around you know, passing patterns, passing areas, and we can come to conclusions. But sometimes in, in football, it's just what you see. And um, and Spurs filled their midfield. Eriksen played deeper in the first half, particularly Ali was deeper. And I'm sure they were looking for the Shaka trap as most teams have done and Arsenal found another way and one of the good things I've always said about the back three and with this back three in particular there's no redundancy in our back three and and, and by that I mean all of them can play so they can all go and get the ball infield they're can all they all happy on the touchline they're all happy in possession so that means we've always got options and good quality coming out from the back with this back three in particular and so i I think it made sense not to pass into Shaka when he's facing his own goal. That just makes sense. We all I, I did notice that we did go out to Kolasinac a lot. We did diagonals to him, check kicked to him a lot. And he basically bullied Trippier in the air. I think uh, him and Bellerin did look very hard-working. They had a high touch rate in the game. And I thought we definitely made a decision or or came to a point where we... Focus on exiting down the flanks, but I always think we do anyway. I think we do. We get lazy sometimes. Mm-hmm. We get lackadaisical. We lose concentration. But really, Arsenal are a team of attacking wide areas, and that's what that's what that's our strength. If you look at our style, we are a wide area team that creates overloads and and through balls down the sides and flat low crosses. So um, we weren't so always
4: we just, though, were we, Clive? I mean, when we were four two three one. There were many oh, no, games no, no, we no, tried no, to play it up the middle.
2: Yeah, that's a different team there, mate. Different yeah, team yeah. when you got when you got you, you, when you got four two three one. You're literally saying, okay, I'm now playing a number ten. I'm going to work through my midfield to get it to my number ten to get it to my wide forwards and centre forward. Right, so you you become much more central, and that's when obviously that was in the Santi time. And I must admit, when it hit half time, I knew what Spurs were going to do. They were going to put us under more pressure. And for the first time in a long time, I really wish we had Sandy Cazor in the second half. Because I was wait, just worried. Wait, for, as the, a fan. for the first
1: time in a long time. <laughs> that, yeah, I well, mean you, I wake up in the middle you know of the night I mean, sometimes but, wishing we had him. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but you know, his particular skill set was perfect for that game in the second half. When you knew we, we were going to be put under pressure, we knew they'd gamble to put us under pressure. And he's the perfect person to get out and play a, a good pass and then go on to them and outnumber them on the break. So I was really hopeful, and I had this little worry that um, Ramsey and Shaka would get caught. They got caught a few times, but the recovery of the rest of the team really did sort of mask that. So um, I, I really, I really, I really enjoyed this game. Some games you don't you emotionally connect to in different ways. This game was a massive emotional roller coaster. Whereas I, I don't even need to watch it couple of times it just burned in my brain and the the fear the energy the movement the the way that we really did fight for the club fight for the badge and it's the sort of game that i almost don't want to overanalyze i want to remember it as an emotional moment as a an Arsenal fan and uh, i absolutely loved it
1: yeah it was a blast and and, i mean it it was a great day because i i think you know, we we got to halftime with that second goal, and I think that made it. I, I don't want to say it wasn't tense in the second half. It it was. It's always tense in the derby, but it it wasn't a shit yourself finish to the game, which was really nice. We were able to sort of enjoy the performance in, in a way that we haven't been in a derby in a while, where it didn't it didn't feel like you were going to pull your hair out. Now, Tim, I thought it was interesting because you know Lacazette got a start in a big game, something that we had been calling for. You know, this front three playing together. And the narrative on him could have been a little different. I thought his running was imp- important, in fact, hugely important to what we did on the day. And yet, he did have some really presentable opportunities fall to him where he he didn't make the most of them. You know, he blasted over from a pretty good position, I think you would say. He had a couple mm. blown opportunities to deliver the final ball. He was just short of getting onto Bellerin's whipped cross um, at the near post mm. after Ramsey slid Bellerin through. And then, of course, he does give the assist to Alexis, although Alexis has to kill a pretty fizzed-in ball to do it. His running was so important. Maybe his end product, in another scoreline, we we could be looking back on that as a problem. But overall, were you impressed with his contribution? Because I, Ozone Alexis stole the headlines, and we'll talk about their contribution. But but how important mm. do you think he was versus you know some of the alternatives we've seen used in big games?
3: Yeah, I, I thought he was really impressive. He was uh, actually when you were describing his performance there, it kind of reminded me of Danny Welbeck a little bit. <laughs> his running was yeah. very
1: important. But he the end he gives us that, but with, yeah, but, and ironically, I mean, yeah, he did have kind of a Welbeckian game until that until yeah. the assist, Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, you know, I, I think he, he's been, he, you know, he's been going along nicely. You get. Um, bef- before this game you kind of get the sense he's still feeling his way in he's still feeling his way into the Premier League feeling his way into the team the front three has changed around quite a bit um, and he's been playing with different partners in there and he's he's looked quite interested I I don't get the sense yet that there's anyone he can't play with Um, you know I think it will be well back when they come in he, even Giroud if he plays like to the right or left of Giroud in you know in a panic situation I could I could see that working as well um but this, this to me was the first time he really looked like he belonged you know it, he didn't look like um a decent striker that had just been parachuted into the team um yeah, which is quite natural because he's he's still feeling his way in, and you know he has been he been at Leon his entire career, so this is a big change for him. Um, but yeah, this this was the first time he really looked like an Arsenal player to me. And you're right, that end product wasn't quite there, and that that shot he had in the first half that he kind of snatched at and blasted over. Yeah, we well, perfect like
1: pass it in on your right foot kind of shot for him, which
3: yeah you kind of expect
1: he, from him, and he just blasted it.
3: Uh, yeah, he snatched it. And Urza was there for the pass. And I think a little bit of that was about um you know, you've you've left me out of a couple of big games and so I want to make a bit of a difference and and uh, you know, like a, he's a goal scorer, so he thinks about it in terms of well if I score I scored against City, kinda of prove my point. If I score here, um, you know, that's that's gonna that's gonna build my case even more and then I won't get left out. So I think there was a little bit of that in there. But the the run, um and the, and the cutback for for Alexis were really good. It was a, it was a fantastic run, uh, really well timed, and we didn't always get the timing right. And in fact, I, I can't remember how many times Sanchez was caught offside. It was quite a lot, and largely from um, from uh, directly from Czech's kicks. Um, I, I think I read something Czech only went to his centre backs like four times in the whole game. He constantly went long. So that's something we were looking for but obviously the fact that Sanchez was was offside so often shows you how high Tottenham were playing mm-hmm. and uh, you know Sanchez is a, a superb player but he probably hasn't quite got the striker's instinct that Lacazette has got and um, whereas Lacazette he was getting those runs right you know um, and the ball didn't always come to him comfortably He couldn't always collect it there was a cutback that yeah, kind of similar to the one he gave Sanchez. I think it was from Colassanach, which was kind of blasted at him, and he couldn't quite get to. And then there was this in the second half, there was this really good run, and there was this kind of clip ball from the right, I think, from Bellerin, and he just couldn't quite gather it. But his running was 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 really, really crucial, particularly in creating space, I think, for um Alexis and especially Erul. and Urzul, you know, he was brilliant, but I think he really benefited from some of the space that Lacazette gave him and a lot of that was like I said Eric Dyer is not a good defender I, I don't even think he's that good a footballer he has um, a function in Pochettino's team which to be honest that's our England team. captain
2: you're talking about that, <laughs> careful <laughs>
1: See this. This is what you guys have to understand. This is this is why you guys are playing chess, uh, uh, checkers, and the United States is playing like three dimensional chess because you can't be disappointed <laughs> in your national team at the World Cup if they don't go to the World Cup, and that's that's really the well, yeah. secret. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. But like Eric, Eric Dyer's, um, you know kind of role in the Spurs team is purely destructive and not always in a fair way. Um, right. I think mean, basically they're just to foul, really. But that doesn't work when you're playing in the back three. And I, I think we really exposed um, him. We really exposed the fact that Spurs are missing out of Irold as well, which which is a big miss for them. Um, and, and, you know, we were... And Spurs had a few things like that. You know, they had Kane and Ali probably didn't look 100% fit and they didn't have out of, out of Irold... Uh, Larice wasn't a hundred percent fit, and I know Clive referenced a lot of this before the game as well. And I think we were able to take advantage of that. Of that and Lacazette was a big part of that because, you know, like we always say, you, you've got to move Tottenham around. You've got to get them running back towards their own goal, and he did that constantly.
1: Yeah, and look, I mean, it's it's important to analyze this player because he is someone who is going to be, as Clive has pointed out, arguably the the guy we're building around for the next mm. few seasons. Um, he is here. Uh, I am a little worried that he might be like a parking meter, and Arson is only paid up for an hour, and so he has to come <laughs> off the pitch after that, or he'll get a ticket or something. But like, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's great to see him in these big games because it's a measure of what we have. And I thought he was excellent. And maybe to your point. A little over eager to prove himself in front of goal because we've, you know, we've seen him finish so coolly. Um, you know, in, in similar positions, on this day he didn't have the finishing, but he did deliver the assist. And, yeah.
3: And can I just just add quickly as well? My only concern with him is I do think physically he does look a little bit. You know, I know everyone moans at the decisions to take him off, but I I thought from the beginning of the second half he looked completely wiped out. Um, and in fact I, I actually think he was lucky to stay on as long as he did yeah. I think he looked absolutely done That's for great. in my, second my half my
1: only uh, retort to that would be we did a lot of pressing from the front a lot of yeah. chasing down without the ball um, absolutely and that, that is a pretty unique game plan for a central striker so not only is he making a lot of pressing runs he's then staying on the back shoulder and trying to make a lot of runs in behind so I wouldn't be surprised if he covered a hell of a lot of kilometers in those hour, mm. in that hour just because of the way we were playing um so and, and again I agree with you. Uh so uh, Paul I mean the the incidents I mean we we had we had some chances early. We had the Lacazette chance we mentioned the one he didn't get to where Bellerin slipped it through across the face of goal. There there were some nearly moments and then the goal comes from uh potentially a non-foul that we're given and a potentially offsides that that's not called. Um, And Mustafi heads in beautifully. And I guess this is a point, right? This is why it's not worth overanalyzing referee decisions. Because at the end of the season, Arsenal fans will be looking back and saying, Oh, we got so screwed. Think of the Stoke call we didn't get. And think of the call at City where they got an offside goal. But those same fans aren't going to turn around and say, Think of the goal or two goals we got in the home derby that maybe we didn't get. I mean, is this as cliche and terrible as it is the reason why you do have to let the bad calls go? Because... Otherwise, then, you could spend all day just talking about every marginal decision?
4: No, you never let the bad calls go. <laughs> so here's what I, I, I think we've all thought about this over the last day or two and maybe come up with completely different answers. Graham Soonis is talking about it, a guy who, you know, during a classic uh, era of Liverpool when they were winning pretty much everything, um, for a long, long period of time. His view on it, and this is this is what I deeply believe, it does not even out over the course of a season. Uh, his words were it might even out over the course of five or ten seasons. But, you know, we will have seen seasons where United got almost every fecking call that was there to be got. And it it's serious, you know, a game here and a game there turns the season. Had we got a result against City... I think that would have really set us up. Now, oh, of course, but, to have- but again,
1: my, my point is simply that I can name for you no less than a dozen calls we've gotten this season that we didn't necessarily deserve, but those are not the ones... At the end of the season, you can remember the injustices. You tend not to remember the ones that went your way. So it becomes difficult to determine whether you were hard done by because you're only remembering the times you were hard done by.
4: Yeah, but some games are far... You know, There are two, three, four signature games in a year... And those don't even out. If you're in the FA Cup final, that doesn't even out. So, do, you, do you think
1: we were fortunate? With the, I'm not saying fortunate to win, because I think much like the City game, we we did benefit from 50-50 calls that could have gone the other way, or you know, 60-40 calls that could have gone the other way, but we were still the better team and deserved to win. I mean, isn't this kind of the I think we inverse? were
4: more unlucky in the City game <laughs> um, than... Uh, you know it's one of those things everybody half the people listening will be like oh that's rubbish it all evens out and the other half will be like they'll they'll be on my side and it's the classic debate but yeah when i look at it i mean if you just want to take the off sides the mustafi one is inches um and defensively they didn't rough them up on the the, uh, the header so good luck to him and Sanchez put the pressure on uh, Sanchez versus Sanchez I don't know who got the kids at the end of this but um, <laughs> he put the pressure on Sanchez to get the free kick I think that one evens out against the penalty against this with City I see those two as very equivalent but the two offsides I'm sorry one's like a yard and a half and flagrant and the other one is just inches and fair play to the attacking team because that's okay. the attacking team gets the advantage look, I, so. I get i get the gist no, I, of your,
1: your opinion yeah. i we can move on from it i, I don't necessarily just dis- i am not a believer this that is it- why we
4: never debate these things
1: no right look <laughs> i i don't believe it evens out at the, the end of a season i don't believe it does i think the challenge is you are you are very rarely going to catalog for yourself the times you got lucky and so sure um uh, you know, obviously the narrative gets built by what you remember and what you remember are the times that luck went against you. So the the first goal, though, you know, obviously a brilliant header from Mustafi and, and really? it, you know, comes from playing long. The second goal I think is really interesting, Paul, and it's interesting for so many reasons because the ball comes, winds up with Shaka. Um, uh, so I, I believe it's Bellerin who Erickson ki- kicks it over his head. I believe Bellerin gets it and gives it to Shaka and he's targeted. They sprint at him. He's bracketed by three guys and Shaka does the most un-Shaka thing possible. First touch, right foot back to Bellerin.
4: Right? He put on his Irish dancing shoes.
1: Yeah, and and right there that makes all the difference because now they're trying to recover. They're running back. They're chasing back to the ball. Bellerin and
4: Bellerin's in all kind of space. Yep,
1: he gives it to Messit, Messit uh, I believe plays it through to Lacazette. Um, and then Lacazette Gives it to Alexis. As far as Alexis goes, there, I know it's been said, but I think it deserves to be said more. The control to bring that ball down is is really probably not getting the attention it deserves. I mean, for you, is the star of the show there, Alexis's control or finish? Is it Shaka making a simple pass with his right foot for once? What what about that goal really brought a smile to your face? Aside from the fact that it won us the that it, well finished, gave us the the two goal lead in the derby.
4: Well, Chaka cracks it wide open. I think that's the big moment. Bellerin's pass is really good, but that pass is there to be made. Lacazette, the one thing I'd I'd maybe uh, uh, digress a little bit on is I think Lacazette made a bunch of runs and Sanchez to some degree that still aren't been picked up. So I think we have a lot of upside there. Oh, yeah. This This was the run that was picked out. Uh, again, right on the shoulder of the defender, maybe arguably an inch offside. Who gives a fuck when you're the when it's that close and you're the attacking team? Uh, I never grumble much when it goes the other way. So I, th- I thought that was beautifully timed by Lacazette. Uh, I think Sanchez cushioning it with his calf. Uh, you know, I think he did the best he could and turned out to be a very good touch. Um, I loved. Uh, Lloris's Ospina impersonation trying to save from behind the line obviously he got his feet a bit tangled but uh, I think the touch and the direction of it and then Sanchez kind of Sanchez always has twice as much time because he moves his feet twice as fast he gets that extra touch in instead of it being a problem it's an advantage normally you take an extra touch you hurt yourself not with Sanchez and he does that thing where he blasts it into the roof of the net again he's done that a few times where he kind of takes the keeper totally out of it, and he just
1: kind of... He he has such an aggression in the box, in the way he plays yeah. in the box, um, and, and you know, he may be small of stature, but his energy and his aggression in the box is incredible. His desire to get to the end of that ball, to get onto the lock is that ball, to kill it the best he can, and then collect it two steps later and blast it in the roof of the net. There's a lot of fast twitch muscle action going on there to make that happen, and And, you know, the one thing that you pointed out, Paul, the run from Lacazette, look, this is not picking on Theo, but just to compare and contrast, Theo loves to lean off the shoulder of the last defender and make straight runs in behind. What's really impressive about Lacazette's run there, and what makes it a marginal call and gets him the call, is it's a diagonal, bent run. He starts to lean, and he sees across the line, and so he curves the run into that space, and that keeps him at least marginally, fractionally onside enough to get that call great please let's do this um i feel like clive is going to struggle to come up with anything to say about this match from here on so let's go to scott get some good talking points load clive up with material and then we'll get him back into discussion so we're going to talk to scott willis he's going to give us the tactical uh pardon me not tactical statistical breakdown of the match and we'll be we'll be back then uh hopefully clive will have something to say at that point An emotionally satisfying game, but also a statistically satisfying game. And for that, we go to Scott, who you can find on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. Scott, great to have you on. And my first question to you, very simple, statistically, you've analyzed the data, you've looked at it all. Uh, What color is North London?
5: It is red.
1: Yeah, and and since we do want to stick with the analytics here, and we're not trying to be qualitative, but more quantitative in our analysis, I think we would agree that North London is 255, comma, zero, comma, zero. Okay, uh, but moving on from that and getting into the deeper side of things, I, I know you want to uh, concentrate on the midfield or the uh, way in which we sort of bypassed midfield and how the statistics bear that out. So why don't you kind of hit us with your statistical observations from the match?
5: Perfect. Not to, to go too much into the, the Tim Stillman territory, but before the match, I wrote um, about how... <laughs> <Touché>. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tottenham um, really looked to press the midfield um, they have the, the reputation as, um, you know, a high pressing team. Um, but the truth is really that they look to control that middle third of the pitch. They, they press high somewhat, but they're not nearly in the same category as Liverpool or Manchester City. But when it comes to the actual that midfield third, that's where they really um, show um, that they will take control Um and you can actually even see that in this game. Um, so uh, there, a way that you actually measure um, pressing is um, passes per defensive action. So it's how many passes your opponent completes per defe- defensive action that you have.
1: So, so in other words, would- how many passes they get off before you intercept or tackle or dispossess or whatever the case may be.
5: Exactly. So, right. yeah, fouls, tackles, ball recoveries, those uh-huh. kinds of things, watch passes, Um it's a it's a pretty simple measure, but it's a, a fairly good proxy. So um, we um, completed seven passes per defensive action for them compared to their league av- or their average of eight and a half. So their press was technically more intense against us. Um, but I think part of that is because we didn't really look to contest that midfield Um so this was something that Lewis Ambrose, who writes at um, uh, Ars blog, um posted actually this morning, and I um, even digged into it a little bit more. Um, Arsenal really bypassed the midfield zone. Um, normally, Arsenal pass 89 times through the center of midfield. But in this game, we only pass through the middle 38 times. Wow! Um, and this is both um, completed and attempted pass. So total of out of curiosity,
1: what, what was our possession in the game? I mean, I think we were around, what, 45% or something like that? Yeah, I
5: think that's about what it is. I mean, there's a couple different ways that you can measure possession. It's either through um, number of passes, number of touches. There's even some people that do the time. But yeah, that's that's about right. Well, because I was go-
1: just going to say, if we had something like 20% 40%. possession, you could equate yeah. the, the fewer passes in central midfield just to fewer passes overall. But it doesn't sound like that's the case. This seems like a concerted effort to stay out of the center of the pitch.
5: Exactly. No, and even if you look at just the the percentage of where the passes are played, so traditionally um, 14% of our passes go through that um, midfield center. Um, this game it was nine percent of our passes so even if it's you know not looking at the absolute numbers but just the percentage um, there's just a big difference in the number of passes that went through Um, yeah I tweeted out um, a picture that you can find on my Twitter um, showing red was all of the, the places that were not the midfield and the blue ones were the ones in the midfield and there's uh, a big gap in the middle where there's barely any blue and a ton of red going around the edges. Um, the other thing that I really want... In wanted, terms
1: of, is that a, like a heat map, a touch map?
5: It, it's similar, yeah. Okay. So it's the, the lines showing where the passes start and where Got they it. end. Okay. Um, the other thing that I wanted to uh, touch on was the um, the actual midfielders. So not only were they not necessarily receiving the ball um, in the middle of the pitch, but once they did, they were looking to not really... Um, advance it with short passes, but advance over the top through long passes. Um, overall, um, including uh, Coughlin in here, uh, Arsenal were 11 of 12 on long passes. Um, so they c- attempted a lot and they completed them at a huge percentage. So that, to me, was was that the, of the whole
1: team the big, or the midfielders specifically?
5: Just the midfielders. So, okay, so uh, Ramsey, Ramsey
1: Shack, and Coughlin got it. Yep. Um, so, so, so they they when they got the ball, they played it long. They didn't try to play the short, quick, uh, little midfield passes. We kept it out of the center of midfield and all in all just decided not to contest that area of the pitch. So if that's the case, and we still had 45% of the possession, where was the ball moving through?
5: Uh, the ball was moving through the side, so they were going um, long to, uh, I'm not going to say the name right, Kolasinac? There you go. Kolasinac?
1: I mean, yeah. you, you say yeah. tomato, I say Kolasinac. It's fine go for it
5: um but yeah so a lot of that yeah is to the, to the wingbacks and to the wide forwards um in uh Ozil and Alexis were getting the ball out there too so yeah you could definitely see that that was the the focus to attack the mm-hmm. spot between their midfield and their wingbacks and really kind of spread the pitch wide
1: and so did we overload in that in that zone i mean did was that where Ozil was popping up alongside Bellerin or Alexis alongside I think what what are we gonna go? Kalasenatch. That's it. Kalasenatch. Yeah, yeah, yeah
5: we need it. to go pull up the the you know his YouTube thing. He says his name. Stats again. Stats
1: are easy. Pronunciations are hard. So, but was that really the key? Was that we we created the overloads on on the wings?
5: Yeah. So that's really where we focused our play. So yeah, everybody talks about Vanger uh, not doing tactics, but he definitely um, saw that uh, Tottenham attacked that middle part of the pitch. So he just looked at it to neutralize it completely, um, focusing on the, the wide areas, um, and playing direct, uh, direct football and getting that ball up the field quick. So
1: yeah, mm-hmm. to me it was a, a great performance. And I mean, just in terms of your eyes and the statistics, do you get the sense that that was the plan or that that was what they gave us and we went with it?
5: I think it was the plan because I think that's what they saw, that that's where um, they could be attacked.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, considering that this is our second game consecutively playing a pressing team, I mean, you mentioned the difference between Spurs and City, but they do both press. I mean, is there something that stands out for you statistically that was better about how we handled this other than what you have just mentioned or something that statistically is stark in terms of contrasting that game and this game?
5: I, you know, I, I wish that I'd, I had a, a a reason why they weren't or they were able to execute this so much better in this match compared to the other one. Um, if there was a, a better plan, because to me, I, I didn't really see the plan um, against Manchester City. Fair enough, <laughs> but this time. <laughs> I don't, and again, that could just be that Manchester City executed their press so much better and didn't even give Arsenal the chance on the ball. I, I, I don't know. But I'm curious, today, do you feel... Today there was a plan, or you know, Saturday I mean, there was a plan and it was executed well.
1: How did Mustafi maybe play into that? I mean, I know against City we didn't have Coughlin and that gave us sort of one less person to receive and distribute from the back to, to kind of start us moving up the pitch did mustafi's inclusion instead of uh, sort of kishelny getting uh pardon me uh Coughlin being forced into center back there potentially improve the way we were able to start our moves
5: you know it's it's tough because overall the passing numbers are not great but again i think that a lot has to do with that we were playing such a direct Trying to just bypass midfield because, I mean, his passing percentage was only 68% total. Mm -hmm. Um, Although, to be fair, um, he was 80% in that first half when the game was in the balance. Yeah. So,
1: and um, and I mean, I assume a much higher volume passer and toucher than Cochran was in, in the city game.
5: I, I would definitely say so.
1: Yeah. Um, and now, I mean, obviously, PPVA is a is a passing statistic you like to look at, along with XG Chain, just in terms of determining where the hurtful passes were made and and how the buildup worked. So, if it wasn't Shaka and Ramsey doing that, who sort of paced us in the progressive passing statistics?
5: Oh, it was Ozil all the way. Um, the man had a, a one of the best performances I've seen from him.
1: Yeah, and yes. and so he was he was our leader in in both of those statistics.
5: Um. Well. So, uh, Alexis um, led the team in uh, the XG chain, but Ozil probably because of sh- shot taking. So, yeah. So talking. I had I had something actually that I, I posted the other day where so Arsenal had 14 shots and Alexis um, contributed either in the build up the assist or actually taking the shot in 10 of them, and that doesn't include his foul that led to the free kick on that led to the goal. So 10 is so a really half, Yeah. Yeah, so eleven ish. Out of so, how many? Out of yeah.
1: fourteen shots.
5: Out of fourteen shots. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah that's pretty that he incredible. He was pretty central in yeah.
1: And and then as far as uh, Mesedozo statistically, I mean, did he stand out for you in in those progressive passing statistics? Yeah. So
5: his his number was a point two nine, which um, as a percentile puts him at the ninetieth percentile.
1: And I mean, obviously, this isn't against you know, Watford. <laughs> Naturally, I pick Watford, who we lost to. But, you know, this is this is against a rival. This is against a big side. This is in a derby. I mean, these are the matches that Ozil has maybe been accused of not performing and admittedly more away than at home. But both the eye test and the statistics suggest that he really came through in this match. Um, just sort of with the general stuff, XG, uh, I know we were favored in this game, but you mentioned the first half is where it was kind of in the balance. The interesting thing to me isn't necessarily what we produced in terms of chance creation, but how limited they were defensively, we're always a little bit suspect. They never really got into good uh, positions, N- not a great performance from them in the attacking half.
5: No, um, mean, uh, I, I know. So if you look at the, everybody kind of has their own different XG model. Um, and for the most part, everybody kind of, at least that I've seen it between 0.6 and 0.7. Um, I had it at 0.68. Um, but the, the one thing which was kind of a standout for me, and maybe this is just he's a, a Spurs fan, but Michael Kayley had theirs at 1.1, which I thought was was kind of surprising. But almost any way you, you look at it, um, they took 14 shots, and each of them was worth less than .1. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could definitely see that they were not great shots.
1: Now, um, that, that's but- kind of a Spursy thing, right? They've been a high-volume, low-quality shot team in the past, right? I mean, they they take a ton of shots. I remember that from last season.
5: Yeah, that is definitely their their M.O. Um, but even now, or even this game, um, Arsenal held them well below their their season average in shots, which I believe is pretty close to 18.
1: Great. So, I mean, all in all, bypassed the midfield, worked the flanks where we had technical advantage against probably their arguably their weakest players, overloading uh, Kolasinac and Alexis or Bellerin and Ozil, and they shined. I mean, we you mentioned Bellerin, uh, uh, pardon me, Ozil and Alexis, and the job they did, Lacazette's running, obviously important as well, but then the strategy can't work if Kolasinac and Bellerin don't come through. And, I, I mean, to me, on the day, they were they were sort of quiet stars for us. Is there anything statistically in their performance that stood out, maybe vis-a-vis the, the City game uh, versus this game, or just their season overall?
5: Um, well, I mean, both of them were uh, towards the top in the touches. So I believe that... Um Kolasinac had the most touches for the team with fifty one wow. uh, bellerin had fifty two um so both of those are just behind um Kishelny, who also had fifty two touches so you could definitely see that that the play went through them mm-hmm. um the most um a lot of responsibility
1: rem- there yeah
5: exactly and i I remember specifically um Hector um having the the beautiful through ball um that he ran um, to, that he had on earlier in the game, and so he was actually the one of the leaders on the, the in the first half for um, Arsenal passing, um, just behind Alexis, who actually um, had .14 in the first half. So Hector was right behind him at .1. Um, so he had one of the the better for passing first halves for the team. Mm-hmm. Um, black, or, yeah, um, Kolesinek was uh, pretty solid on both games, um, both halves. So but to me, they were both uh, top players.
1: Okay, so it, it it was a beautiful day of spreadsheets for you, Scott. Is what I'm getting. It was. It, it, was, it was, and it was I've I've had day. so
5: much fun digging through the data afterwards, and yeah, it's trying to find new fun angles just to, to keep reliving the game.
1: Well, you'll you'll have to give us a statistical breakdown on the uh, supposed power shift that apparently didn't take place, but we'll we'll do that on the next podcast. In any event, um, always a, a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, you've been putting some great stuff up. Uh, on Twitter, and I noticed that you are writing for the Short Fuse now as well. Is that correct? I,
5: I do. Um, yeah, I, I, a shock transfer move. Quick plug. They swooped in. Yeah. Um, yeah. So writing at the the been you know digging a lot of the my uh, stats analysis up there.
1: Well, you're on. You're on the Short Fuse. Tim's got his arse blog column. Clive was on the arse cast. Paul and I will just hang out under a bridge for the rest of the season, I guess. I don't know. In any event, uh, Scott's on Twitter. at Scott, uh, uh, pardon me, O underscore that underscore crab. Thank you, Scott.
5: Thank you. Have a good Thanksgiving. Enjoy Uh, the Europa League and Turkey. Yeah,
1: it's it's the traditional American uh, Thanksgiving of Turkey and Europa League. Uh, We'll chat with you after that, too. Cheers. Okay, so that really gives the numbers to... The what our eyes were telling us, the bypassing of the midfield, the utilizing uh, of long balls, playing over the midfield. And Clive, the, the players that stood out, Alexis and Ozil, we can wax poetic about them all day long, and I'll give Tim a chance to do that in a moment, but I want you to talk about the unheralded players, if you don't mind, just a moment. Uh, Klosinac and and Bellerin. On another pod a few weeks ago, we talked about Bellerin sort of being ready to go supernova. This This is a game that I think will go under the radar. But the wingbacks have been so important for us this season. And on this day, they were really what touched everything off. They're, the way they created those overloads um, to help us play around and over and beyond the midfield and avoid that area of difficulty for us, were they sort of the secret weapon for us on the day? Uh,
2: I think so. I think the, the way we play is very, very, very brave. You, we do push teams back, and um, at the start of the game, I felt it's a little bit like like a rugby game. You know, when rugby you you kick the ball to your position they nope. kick it back to you. Nope. Nope. No, no, no idea. I felt um, <laughs> well, that's that's for our, that's for our English listeners, right? So okay, sometimes you you kick for you kick for position, right? And, uh, and and you literally you have a kickoff, and I felt that we started moving the ball around, and then we just gave it to them, and we tried to press them, and they they thought we, we can't get out, so they gave it to us. We said no, we. We don't want it here. We're giving it back to you, and we—it really was an off-the-ball game. But once we got a little bit of control of the ball, and we started to really move and cut through them, it was coming from our wing backs and their position. And they—we've often know, we all know—they play quite high. But to do that, it's easier said than done. You've got to have the personality to do it, and I keep talking about personality. It's one of my intangibles, but to have the personality to drive your opponent back, because I guarantee you. Trippier and Davis had the same instruction. Let's push them back and make their back three a back five. And we had the same instruction. Let's push them back and make their back three a back five. And we won the personality game. And that was because of the quality of ball movement in the centre of the pitch. When it gets to players like Ursula and Sanchez, you can gamble off secure possession. You can gamble off what they may do, and you can be brave, and you can run in behind. And sometimes you need to make runs to to, to send messages to your opponent. So that, when Ramsey tucks it inside Davis and Bellarmine ran onto it for, for the cross to Lacazette, we nearly got killed by the keeper, etc. That's a great run, regardless whether it went in there or not. What's that say to Davis now? I'm going to pick your pocket. So I better stay deep. That's Davis now done. So Bellerin's now playing in the areas that he wants to play. And on the left-hand side, we did diagonals in the air to Colosinic against Trippier, who's not very big. And that was our exit. Guess what he won? All those headers nodded down to Alexis, and off (laughs) we went. So, I, I really like those i I'm a big fan of Bellerin. I don't get why people have a go in. I actually think we need to support him with another player equally as good so that we can rest him more for these big games. But I, I did sort of tweet out about Coliseedic and, and Monreal. And I sort of said, that I, I don't remember any sort of dramas on their side. I don't remember anything. I just don't remember any action. They just seemed so cool, so calm, so assured. And nothing happened down there. I felt Spurs targeted Bellerin a lot more, and I felt he was absolutely knackered by the end. And I saw Hainsey, Maitland, Niles on the bench, and I wondered, just in the back of my mind, was Bellerin carrying something and and that was why Ainsley Maynard Niles was on the bench just in case he broke down. Because I just felt he was under a lot of pressure, but he managed it superbly well and was heroic in his performance. So I'm I'm a big fan of those two. We've got got the no drama left side with the two adults with Colosenic and Monreal. And we've got lots of pizzazz on the right-hand side with Koscielny now supporting Bellerin. And suddenly Bellerin's positioning doesn't look so bad as it has done on occasions last season. So, yeah, I'm, I'm loving their work. I'm loving their work.
1: Yeah, I thought they did a great job. And just real quick, uh, Clive, I mean, a word about Koscielny. I mean, you know, we have these worries yes. about his his Achilles and and he's getting up there. But this, apart from maybe a few little uh Dual issues he had early in the game. This was a masterful, masterful performance from him, and just the amount of running he is doing, and the extent to which he was able to to get in the way, make you know, make the the critical defensive plays that had to be made. I mean, he he just seems to still be at the top of his game, doesn't he?
2: He discourages people, so he's agile, he's quick, he's sharp, and he can get up in the air. I need. I think him and Mustafi made one mistake earlier when they both went for the same ball and and Kane got in behind. After that, error free, completely discouraged Kane. Kane's going off after 70 minutes. Um, he he's a once a week player now. It seems like he seems up. Well, thankfully we only League, have
1: Europa leagues. So yeah, exactly. The
2: Europa, the Europa leagues helping him stay fit. It's obvious, and um, yeah, he's a once a week player, but. W- He's absolutely tipped up on, on, on that occasion. I'm sure we're going to get onto Mustafi later on, but the, the whole back three were. Well, while
1: well, we're well, with good. you, I mean, do, do you have a, a quick word about Mustafi? I mean, you know it's our day when his slide tackles aren't being ridiculed on Twitter, but actually being celebrated. He obviously made one huge intervention on Kane where he, he dives in and, and blocks a shot that might have been headed for the low corner. Um, but all in all, I mean, for a player yeah. who we've had questions about, this, this game seemed to really suit him.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange thing. and It's a strange thing about Arsenal. We have players with, I keep saying it, personality. And Mustafi's got one. And then you wonder where, where that personality goes. And I think he's made for the centre. And who would have thought that Kushel, who played most of his career on the left, left-hand side? He's played right centre back in the two on occasions and not looked very good. Suddenly put him right centre back in the three and he looks great. Mustafi put him in the middle, and he's suddenly the boss, and he's pointing and shouting and communicating. And uh, you're looking at this, you're thinking, "This is this isn't too bad. This is this is looking really, really good." But it was their it was their desperation to block shots, to really press quickly with energy, and I just think it made Spurs turn away. I think it took a lot of their sort of physical confidence away. And physically, I was concerned about this game before, but I wasn't. Concerned technically, but I was concerned physically. Spurs turned it into a track meet, and but what they, what the back three did every time that the midfield was bypassed, which wasn't very often by the way, um, they were out, out to meet them, arm in the back, turn the body away, make a foul, jog back in. No, it was very business like, and um, yeah, I can't find fault with too many of them to be honest.
1: Yeah, it, it is interesting because I, I think. The the thing that really impressed me is we didn't have to do a lot of defending in our box. We defended on the front foot, and I think Mustafi does that pretty well. Um, I'm not sure of his defensive positioning when we get pushed back and when he's in his defensive third as much. Um, I don't the feel the thing like-
2: that worries me with him earlier is when airily sometimes I think if we get a flat cross from not deep areas but from near our bylines. I worry about him then. I worry when he can't get a run and jump and get elevation because he's only about five foot ten and a half. So that's the only time I worry about And When the game's in front of him and he can see it coming, I think he's very good. He's very good.
1: Yeah. Um, Tim, so two, two things. First, just with respect oh. to the, the, the day at the stadium, I mean, I didn't oh. hear Spurs fans once the whole match. <laughs> um, the atmosphere was incredible. The support was great. I mean, I always have to laugh when people say the problem is the fans and yet it's our home record that's fantastic um mm. and presumably we are still playing in front of our own home fans um <laughs> uh do you think the fact that there was t- a two-week international break to kind of miss football and get excited for the derby and put the disappointment of city behind us and some of the frustration of the loss behind us that that kind of helped or do you think it's just typical derby day everyone's going to bleed red get behind the team i mean because this this was really extraordinary support start to finish
3: yeah I, th- I think maybe there was a bit of that yeah i mean so in some respects um it it will always be like that. So, I I mean, someone a friend of mine said afterwards he was like, oh, this kind of you know this feels a bit like our cup final now, which I which I completely dismissed and said you're being stupid. He was like, yeah, I know, and but he was talking about you know the level of excitement in the stadium, and I was like, mate, I, I remember it being like that when you know we were going through seasons unbeaten, you know, yeah. we were winning league titles. It was it was always like that. Um, and I think it always will be. I, I think I think you're right. I think there there probably was um, an element to which there hadn't been a game for a couple of weeks. There hadn't been a home game for, for quite a few weeks, really, and the one that preceded it, the Red Star Belgrade one, I mean... Hardly counts. Barely, yeah, exactly, barely even counts, and I'm pretty sure that a lot of people in the stadium on Saturday weren't even there, um, to be honest. So, yeah, th- this really felt like something to get behind, I think as well, like some of the, you know, some of the kind of coverage in the build-up, this kind of, this really, like, I I don't. So Tottenham are, I think, a better team than Arsenal at the moment. They're a better unit, certainly. Um, But all of this, and 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 right, I understand it, right, because there's such a demand for content at the moment, and you know, the four of us knocking out a podcast about every game can't really complain about proliferation of content but what that means what, is what are you sometimes. To say? <laughs> <laughs> but what i mean sometimes is like um we sometimes well i say we uh the media and the people on the fringes of the media and 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 whatnot try and create talking points where there there aren't any you know um and all this like this power shift stuff it's been it's been going on for years this conversation and and you know Top Move only finished above us once and it was like this year And yet this whole power shift thing has been going on for ages and ages, but it's really ramped up this time. And I I think there really was a sense, not not that we were the underdog because we weren't. Um, A lot of people are saying that, but um, one look at the actual betting odds, which literally determines what an underdog is, (laughs) um, shows that Tottenham weren't the favourites. So um, the bookies didn't have them as favourites. But, you know, there was a lot of this, like, because you know, Spurs were marginally better than us for, like, one season. There's this, oh, that's it, the power shifted, that's it, you know, they're much better, they're going to turn up, they're going to roll them over 3-0. And it, and it's just like, well, that's obviously not going to happen. That, that very, very rarely happens in matches between the top six, um, you know, granted, well, We're usually involved in them
1: <laughs> <one>. <laughs> when but, they um, happen. Yeah, no,
3: but but very like no one comes to the Emirates and rolls us over like that. You know our home record's formidable. We've beaten Man United the last two seasons at home. You know we've not lost to City for about four and a half years at home. I think beat Chelsea three nil um, last season.
1: Yeah, their three
3: nil last season. I oh, went we lost at home to Spurs for seven years. You know we're we're formidable at home, and all of this like. I I think people just got I think everyone just got a little bit over outside of Arsenal got a little bit overexcited. And I th- I think that factored into the crowd. I really you do. I, I think, think there was a lot of Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, let's let's you know this this is all a bit <laughs> premature and all this like power shift stuff. I think that played into the atmosphere a bit and I think everyone really, really enjoyed it and we, we have lots and lots of songs at Tottenham's expense and usually in a North London derby you go through a lot of them. The interesting thing this time, I didn't hear the uh, We Won the League at White Hart Lane try and go up once. Um, I, I might have just missed it. But um, the one that kept going up was the Tottenham Hotspur, You'll Always Be Shit, which, which is quite funny. But but it's really, it really Very pointed. loud, very loud. Yeah, yeah, but very, very pointed, you know, like, Playing into this, you know, you got a bit ahead of yourselves. You thought, you pipe know, down. you thought you yeah. were coming in. Yeah, you thought you were coming in as the big dogs, you know, um, but we put your tail back between your legs. And I, I think that that was, it, whether the crowd consciously knows that, I think it's really significant that that was the song that came out again and again. That was a very, you know, pipe down, noisy neighbors type thing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, look, I, I think part of the reason for the power shift talk is mood, right? The mood around Arsenal has been deteriorating. Mm-hmm. And the mood around Spurs, since Pochettino showed up, has been Mm. improving. And so the emotion of Spurs supporters, the feeling about their club is improving. The feeling about our club has been declining. And that feels like a power shift. The problem is the actual results don't bear that out. You know what Mm. I mean? Uh, Clive, real quick, your theory on the power shift?
2: I think it's more or the major takeaway for me. Um, the, the lead up to the game and the chat afterwards about how we're perceived as clubs, and and I think you know with the whole journalist piece. I think what's really happening here is that we we are being questioned. We are being questioned, but actually. When people are reporting on football, are they questioning the opposition enough? And the thing about Spurs at the moment, they are the media darlings. And one of the main reasons for that is they've got a lot of young English players in their team. And whatever you say, the media like to see English players in England team. And so they're going to give those teams a much less of a hard time. They're going to put them in a rosier context. And I've always said this for many, many times. I um, mean, Tim discussed it online. I've always felt that Arsenal are almost like the foreign team in the premiership. We're the team the almost like an outsider. And I think that's because we had the, the first major successful foreign manager, the, one of the first teams to play 11 foreigners. And we're almost, we're almost not an English team. I know we don't have many English players in our squad, but I do feel that... I feel Spurs like you're dismissing the British core. What about the war? Yeah, someone exactly. please think of
1: the British Corps?
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so that's the way it is, and and they want Spurs to be successful. There's there's a freshness about them, and and there's a, a perceived boredom about us, and I'm sure that got through to the players. It certainly got through to the fans, and everyone was pumped up for this game. And uh, I think it's what it's almost the major takeaway for me: how we reacted to the perceived death of Arsenal Football Club. Yeah. Um,
1: Well, look, I mean, the, the end of the day, too, let's face it, the one thing that can really shift power that can move the fortunes of a club is money, right? Chelsea and City shifted power with money. And as long as we are spending more and our wages are higher than Spurs' over time, that's what counts. So, can they finish ahead of us for a season? They've proven they can. Could they do it for a second season? Maybe, maybe not. Can they stay above us in the pecking order with less money? Not over time. So, you know, they can talk power shift all they want, but the real power comes from your wage bill. And you know, we still have that over them by a pretty hefty margin. Um, Paul, as far as the game goes, Ozone Alexis were sensational. So much question about oh, should we just stick them in the fucking reserves? They don't want to be here. Get them out, all that. But you know, this was a game where they showed just how special they can be again. And uh, you know, Alexis, ten of our fourteen shots, he either took the shot or played a pass involved in that shot. Mesut Ozil in the progressive passing stats that Scott talks about uh, led the team was in the 90th percentile with his PPVA numbers. So again, a dominant performance. I mean, is it just the sad reality at some level that no matter how much we feel these two may not be committed to the cause or may want to be off or whatever it is, that they are overwhelmingly our best players and that our fortunes rise and fall with their contributions?
4: Well, they do. Um, uh, And that's a responsibility on their side too. When they're both at it, when they're both fully engaged in furthering the team's objectives. Is someone playing make- with their
1: microphone or a gold chain? Is someone wearing a gold chain that says, we hate Tottenham? No? No one? <laughs> Is someone using me. iPhone headphones to record on and they're maybe bumping up I, against um, their scratchy but, sweater?
3: But they're, they're pretty
1: still. Okay, okay. I'm putting you on notice, Tim. You're on notice. <laughs> All right, Paul? keep going yeah, mute, mute when you're not talking or something see this is why I, am, I deserve a button where i can mute each of your microphones i i yeah. promise i would in no way abuse that power anyway go on oh yeah <laughs> what's what's that clive i couldn't hear you i muted you uh go ahead go yeah, ahead exactly.
4: Paul. <laughs> so yeah it, it cut both ways but on a day like this you think my god this has to go on uh, and maybe it can at least for a season um uh, i think the people who will have enjoyed this victory as much as anybody will be Sanchez and Ozil. Maybe they see enough to believe uh, in that performance that they can have a heck of a season and really push on from here. So, you know, Ozil played like a guy who's, who had his tit in a ringer and, that this was kind of like payback time to prove a point. Eriksson trotting around the pitch. I mean, it was Ozil who was left out of every North London Derby eleven, not Sanchez. Um, and uh, kind of like the no-look passes and the switches and the long balls, uh, Ozil was like on it. He didn't have that usual hesitation where he has a look at a midfielder and says, will I chase him back or won't I? He was straight on it. At least for the first sixty minutes of the game, he kind of slowed down a little bit after that, but uh, yeah, I, I thought uh, uh, what we saw there was the best of 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 ozel in terms of performance and Sanchez always tries, but I don't know if he always tries for the team and for himself and and these two were very much all on the s- same page as the rest of the team
1: yeah i I, I thought it was interesting when. Uh uh, Mustafi scores his goal. That it's sort of Ozil and Alexis sauntering together back to celebrate, you know, as as a duo. Um, I definitely get the sense that they are on the same wavelength no matter what. I mean, is the difference in Ozil's performance today, or not today, but on the day, um, the off the ball work, though? I mean, is that is that really it? Like, we always expect him yeah, to be good on yeah. the ball. And some days, look, some days you're just not going to have it right. Your, your passing's just not going to be where it needs to be. That happens. But. The sprints, the running, the, the defensive pressure that he put in today. I mean, does this prove sort of, unfortunately, the point that his detractors have that, look, Messi, you can do it. You've proven you can yeah. do it. Do it every fucking game, please.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- th- the secret of this, t- you know, we, dis- we debate whether Arsenal can press effectively or whether we can only do a one-man press this was a superb pressing performance from the front three as a unit. And our back three were superb as a unit. Um, and you could see areas of real competence in this team right from the get-go. And you, to Tim's point, you can't help but think they spent a week planning how they were p- going to play this game. And they were all exactly on the same p- page. I mean, who would have thought a year ago we would be outplaying Spurs uh, in a three at the back system? and outpressing them in terms of it, our effectiveness. I'm not saying we did more pressing than them. I'm just saying the effectiveness of when and how we pressed as a team. And Ozil was an integral part of it. Um, in his defense, he's needed somebody like Lacazette making those runs ahead of him. Uh, he also, maybe differently to other games, had Ozil making those runs, pushing forward. So, uh, this was a lineup that really suited Ozil, uh, stretching the the, the Tottenham defence and and creating those those channels for him to pass through. So there's there's plenty of material on all sides, but what can't be doubted was this was Ozil with loads of skin in the game. Uh, it's funny how many players in general talked after the game we didn't do our talking before the game we did it after the game and everybody had something to say Mustafi, Bellerin, Ozil even Um, so this was you know clearly it had gotten to us what was being said about us that that, uh, on the one hand they say you know uh, we don't listen to what people say on the other hand they clearly do and it clearly bothers them and it clearly bothered them that none of them were in the North London Derby 11s of any of the journalists apart from basically Sanchez and there was some anger and they they played with anger and Ozel tracked down Erickson on a number of times to make sure he wasn't going to be the guy who got the headlines uh, but back to your point He's, he's got to do this every game, but maybe maybe this is the point from which we push on from. It was a decent City performance. It could have been better. Uh, if we maybe had taken this game plan against City, it would have made even more sense than how we played City. I mean, it's subtle variations, but important ones. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we take this on forward. Can we, can we play this effecti- as effectively against a strong 4-2-3-1 team? That'll be the next challenge.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course. But I I think the nice thing here is that you look at Mesut and Alexis Sanchez and you're looking for any sign that you can really depend on them to be the difference makers. And they were in this game. And and they have to be. I mean, I don't care how much you may love Theo Walcott, Olivier Giroud, Danny Welbeck, Alex Iwobi. You know, you can go through and name the players. Mesut and Alexis Sanchez are better players, at least right now, and dramatically better players. And so and they're
4: the stars and if if they're in a ge- if they're in a crappy messy game where we're just not playing very well and they don't look like they're bleeding for the team it's going to fuck up the whole team it just yeah, is yeah of course because you, bird you, camp would never have done that he would never have backed off he would have been the guy bleeding on the field even when he's not playing well and we're not playing well. well uh, and it sets
1: a message. Yeah, of course. Imagine if you were a Barcelona player and it looked like Messi didn't give a shit. Right? Yeah. I mean you'd be like, well we're we're proper fucked. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Um so- uh, And I'm sorry
4: that Messi has a problem with his body language, and it's unfortunate, leave, but it's unfortunate, but he really cares. But if he really cares, shake up his fucking body language, even if it's just acting, because he's got to have uh, got the message by now. He has
1: to be a leader. I get your point. I, my, my, my answer to that, though, would be most of us are smart enough to tell trying, right? So body language aside, I don't care if he looks dejected all the time. I mean, Agreed. Alexis Sanchez throws a strap. You could tell Ozil was at it in this game, really yep. at it, all the way yep. at it. And I think, you know, that, that was all any of us would ask for. Because the thing about Ozil, I mean, it's the little things, right? Every time Hector Bellerin had the ball, there were chances he could have been pressed in a really bad situation. But Ozil was always there, three yards from him, right in the open space, somewhere to be so we had a ball. Now, look, we played a lot, a lot of long balls. A lot of switches, long switches across the pitch, and and ultimately those things were effective. But seeing Mesedozo be in those spaces, not just making defensive actions, but running to the space where he could be be a, a player to receive the ball, was crucially important. And Alexis did it as well on, on the other flank. And you know, even though this was an Ozil man of the match performance, Alexis gets a goal. Alexis, you know, is is fouled for the the first goal. Alexis contributes, you know, ten. 10 of the 14 shots we take, he's he's involved in the build-up. I mean... And,
4: and he was so often the outlet and also the guy who immediately switched play as soon as he'd drawn the overload because that was the thing. The ball went to him. He drew the overload. He'd switch play. And Ozil and, and Bellerin, who are forming... When you think about it, they've been in the club a long time together, but they haven't really lived on the right wing together, which is what they now do. That's a, a very late development that Lacazette... And Sanchez, uh, being part of the front three, has enabled and allowed. And we're kind of accepting Ramsey and Chaka, at least it might seem that, that they are not the guys to to live on the ball, to play the ball out. We didn't see any of the classic Chaka passes from midfield in this game. No, They basically shuffled it out to somebody to the right and let them play it up the wings. And that allowed Ramsey to focus on what he's good at, covering ground around the midfield against their three, and getting forward uh, when we're in possession. So that hoofing the ball ahead of us strategically works for Ozil and works for Ramsey and works for our midfield.
1: Yeah, I, I, look, it's it's a great win. It is a is a crucial win. And Clive, I think this is really now the interesting thing. This season has not felt like it started because of all the international breaks. Um, yeah. There's been no, there's been no rhythm to this season. Very staccato, very stop start. Um, and look, I mean, that doesn't give us an excuse for the results. But what happens now is we have a run. We have a run of no more international breaks. And there's 27 points up for grabs. I think in December alone, is that possible? That sounds impossible. Maybe it's between now and December. 27 points. Um, you know and. All of the tough games we have between now and then are home. Home to Liverpool, home to City, uh, pardon me, United. We're home to Chelsea on the 3rd of January. But other than that, it's West Brom, it's Crystal Palace, it's West Ham, it's Newcastle. I mean, these are teams we should be beating. The next two are Burnley and Huddersfield, and I'm not saying Burnley away isn't a tough fixture, but I mean, you know, it's one we should be winning. How important is it, now that we have this run, now that we have this packed run of fixtures... To get a good performance, a big win to get this run started this way.
2: I think Burnley almost becomes a cup final now. To me, I think. Um,
1: I don't know. I don't know if you know this, but it's actually the thirty-eight cup finals. The, the Premier
2: League. Yeah, but I mean, really, I really think it's an important game. I think because we, we got we took a bit of stick before the Spurs game. And then we shoved it up everyone's backside, right, by playing that well. And everyone immediately went to the self-protection mode. Oh, yeah. My oh, well, opinion was do wrong. They won't
1: do it again next match.
2: Yeah, it? they won't do it every week. In fact, I predict they're going to lose to Burnley. And, and it, was, it was like, rather than say, you know what, we maybe underestimate them, we questioned Arsenal, but we didn't question Spurs and their issues. We didn't look at the fact that Dele Alli's only played one game this season well, and it was against Real Madrid, so make of that what you will, given the fact he's changed his agent. We didn't question the fact that Victor Wanyama, a really good player for them, wasn't there. So many issues they had across their team. We didn't want to look at it. We just wanted to look at Arsenal's issues, and, and I think... Every time we start to get a bit of trust, we go to a next game and we and we mess up. So I really think Burnley is important. The home form seems to be working, but Manchester United would love to come along and get a draw at home. They would love to do that. I think it's really important that we get an away win, and we maybe have to tweak things slightly a little bit. We could decide to go there and with the front three, and I don't mind. I don't mind doing that at all, but. Much much of the game yesterday, Urza was playing slightly deeper and getting forward, but we really had a front two, and I'd like to do that a lot more away from home. The combination of Lacazette and Alexis as a front two is really quite exciting. We almost used Alexis as a lazy forward. If we could do that, solidify the middle a little bit more, I think our waveform would improve. I think that's the next step for us. We've got to get those away points because the value of the Europa League... We're in the pack amongst teams that are playing Champions League games and they're they are they're not having the rotation opportunities that we are having. We've got a deep squad, we've got a big wage bill, we're going to make 11 changes for the game against Cologne midweek and not many teams can do that and put the same level of quality out almost as what we can. So it's very important we take advantage of this stretch of games now. And I, I, I've got a funny feeling we are going to. I think that this is, for me, the second inter- this international break going by is the start of the season, and we've got a lot of fit players again. Welbeck is back, Chambers is back, so we've got we've got a real opportunity to really have a complete flip over in teams, and put pressure on the first eleven. So yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to this next stretch.
1: Well, it'll be interesting. I mean, look, Burnley are level on points with us, and they've allowed nine goals this season. So I don't mean to dismiss them, but it's we're on 22 points. There's four points that separate us and United. I mean, unfortunately, 12 between us and the top, but four between us and second place United. And United are coming to Arsenal, and Liverpool are coming to Arsenal, and, you know, uh, we, we just beat Tottenham at ours. I mean, th- there's tough games ahead. I think Chelsea and Liverpool actually played this weekend uh, coming up. So there's a chance for this to really be what kicks our season on. And I think given the fact that after every two or three games there's been an international break, it's been hard to create momentum – losing here could have started a really difficult run but but winning this game and and getting that confidence and and finding that this first 11 is really the solution and Paul alluded to it admittedly um, last pod saying you know he hasn't broken out this front three a lot but if he's saved it and prepared for it and now it's ready and that you know that may- pays dividends then maybe it was worth it well we'll find out now because there's a chance to go on a big long run uh, between now and the end of the year Tim I, I think we have to come on to it now uh, as our final point of the match of the of the, of the the pod and that is just the sort of the ray of sunshine that is butthurt journalists um, so <laughs> Arsenal tweeted in response to a guy who published an article saying my Spurs Arsenal combined 11 which by the way get in the sea combined 11's um, my Spurs Arsenal combined 11 is just 11 Spurs players and Arsenal replied after the match with a simple gif of Mesut Ozil drinking tea and i mean look i get that the nuremberg trials have been over for a while i think we could at least consider reopening them to see if this is a war crime um you know have him try have the social media director tried at the hague it's possible but you you did get into the wars a little bit online with uh wackos like miguel delaney among others um who obviously all banded together as journalists and said that this this shall not stand, that this is an outrage, that this is an abuse of an epic nature, that this is a total lack of respect and regard for Arsenal's responsibilities as a club, as an institution, Um, but really, it's all bullshit, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, th- to be honest, I, I see where, um, I see, like, I, I don't think some of the points uh, being offered uh, are crazy at all. I see where they're coming from. Well,
1: let, let me just stop you for one second to make the point. The reason this came up is just that, that the journalist in question who posted the, the Combined 11 and Arsenal responded to it, and the journalist claims, and yeah. I only say claims because I, I didn't see it, but I, I have no reason to believe he's, not, he's lying, claims that he was then subjected to 15 hours of uh, torrents of uh, online abuse
3: yeah and and to be honest i don't really doubt that um twitter is like that um you know i I know i've I've received some uh, some pretty troubling stuff myself and i don't i invite it in the
1: reviews to this podcast so there you go
3: but i i I get where they're coming from you know 12 million followers a lot of whom are going to feel very tribal and and stuff like that and really the the crux of the debate is how far you think arsenal are responsible for the actions of the people that follow them and you and it's it's not a terrible point to say that um perhaps they should be a bit more responsible and understand that that kind of thing's likely to happen i i think there are a couple of logical fallacies going on um first of all saying um, don't bring attention to that thing I did purely for attention, I, I don't think is a fantastic logical argument because it's it was a
1: wine. It's hilarious.
3: Um, you know, also, I think that gives the, the people who write this kind of abuse, it gives them a get-out um, to say, you know, to somehow imply that Arsenal are responsible for it or even that they know there's going to be a pylon. I think that gives them too easy a way out. Um but also I, I, I see it like from Arsenal's social media point of view um in that they're like the job of the Arsenal Twitter account is to create engagement with Arsenal fans, not with reporters. And I do think that like quite a lot of reporters are maybe a bit self important at times, not all of them. And you know, listen, I really don't want to be one of these or oh, the yeah, media yeah. Or, or the journos and, you know, oh, they're all biased because like, that's all just fucking rubbish. It's absolute rubbish and it's really tiresome. But, you know, the, basically, a, quite, a, and, and again, like, please don't chalk this up to, oh, they're all against us. But, you know, not not all incorrectly, but Arsenal get quite a lot of negative press written about them. Not, not um, entirely unjustified. And the Arsenal account is one of the vehicles that Arsenal have to try and steer that back, you know, to try and create a favourable impression of themselves with their fans. And um, they don't really get the chance to do fun kind of replies very often because the Arsenal fan base is always so angry. But just after you've beaten Tottenham, it's a kind of rare opportunity for them. And actually, I think that privately, Arsenal will consider this quite a successful piece of engagement because... um, how many Arsenal fans have you spoken to about this who didn't love the tweet and the gif? Um, and that's and, and you know but, and saying all this, we shouldn't downplay the abuse that the journalist in question received. Like that should absolutely that should not be written off as a natural consequence of writing a football article, no matter how fucking dumb and how much of a wind up it is. That we shouldn't accept that that is a natural consequence, and that shouldn't be downplayed you know a lot of people questioning the veracity of the claims i don't doubt it at all the journalist in question showed me some screenshots and uh what he says is true and it's that, that's it's irrelevant troubling. To me.
1: i mean we know there's and, abuse on twitter so yeah
3: and and you know yeah and, and we shouldn't downplay that and we should take that very seriously personally i just don't think that we should lay that at arsenal's door um but you know i i, I understand the other point of view I do also think that perhaps if you're writing for a publication like Daily Mail, asking others to consider the consequences of their content is, you know, um, that's always going to put you in a difficult position, quite frankly. But again, I reiterate, that doesn't mean that that individual deserved um, some of the abuse he got, because it's just absolutely unreasonable and those people should be dealt with and banned from the platform. But actually, what, what Arsenal did... Um, was no mean feat. They managed to unite the Arsenal fan base um, behind something that they did for you know a bit of a joke, And because they wanted to show um, you know Arsenal fans that they get a bit pissed off by like the negative press and that they have a right of reply. And you know they they judged that this was the time to do it. Um, and actually, from an Arsenal point of view, they judged it correctly because pretty much unanimously, um, Arsenal fans liked and enjoyed this and so therefore for them it was it was probably a successful piece of um should we say engagement but (laughs) um yeah i i I think there are a few things going on here and and the abuse should be taken very seriously as a society a, a societal issue as an issue with writing stuff about football but i don't think that should be laid at arsenal's door i don't think that you can say you know that Arsenal should bear the responsibility for that any more than, say, the Daily Mail kind of writing wind-up articles should. Um, and you know, at, at, at the end of the day, I, I, I personally would rather they just didn't give it the airtime at all. But I'm just one of Arsenal's 12 million followers, and they have to devise some kind of social media strategy to to deal with that. So I think it's a little bit storm in a teacup, and maybe this is. Um, you know this is a sign of that there is a bit of like new media versus old media going on here i i don't know but um but i i don't think the the points of the likes of Miguel, i don't, i don't think they're ludicrous or ridiculous i i just don't agree
1: i think they are ludicrous i think they're ridiculous i think they are the height of the safe space self important old boy network stupid bullshit that makes these people impossible to engage with are there good journalists intelligent journalists yes are there fools like miguel delaney who have no business existing on social media absolutely and i'll tell you something first of all if you work for a newspaper and you publish an article. The goal of that publishing is to attract as much attention to it as possible. If you went to your boss in a newspaper and said, boss, I'm really annoyed. My article got more attention than I wanted. Your boss would (laughs) fucking fire you. The whole point is attention. Arsenal gave his article if you want to grant it that name attention that's the goal that's called publishing okay now they didn't do it in a disrespectful manner it was very playful the fact that there are terrible people on the internet is not the fault of people who engage and i think there's a major agency issue here arsenal post tweets all the time wishing the ladies team well and the replies are a torrent of people telling them to stay in the kitchen they post things wishing people a happy gay pride and there's a torrent of homophobic abuse under it should they stop posting those things because it exposes people to that abuse of course not the agency belongs with the people who choose to say terrible things and expose themselves as terrible people and so The most important thing we should do is not adjust our behavior or our engagement with one another because there are people whose entire goal as trolls is to destroy that engagement. They win that way. It's kind of like this is how the terrorists win. The trolls win when they destroy our ability to engage with each other in a lighthearted, enjoyable way. That's what this was, and that is not Arsenal's fault. And you know what? If Arsenal had replied to a 14-year-old Spurs fan who said, I think Spurs have the best 11, then yeah, I could see the argument. Because you're taking a private citizen who's vulnerable and pulling them into the light. But someone who publishes their opinion for all to see and wants a broad reach does not have that same shield. And lastly, let's remember, this is not arsenal you know they're, they're not a member of fucking parliament this is the social media director whose job is to increase engagement that's literally their job so they have a job all day to sit around and try to come up with clever things to engage on the internet like that's what they fucking do okay I don't know what you think they are they're not a member of parliament Paul you want to jump in here and shut me down real quick because I'm going to blow my fucking top
4: this. <laughs> I think you're both spot on the only thing I want to say is I thought it was deliciously funny it was lighthearted, it was playful, it was a wink, and I don't see why 12 million Arsenal supporters and beyond shouldn't get to enjoy that moment, um, for all the reasons you guys have talked about. We all know there are idiots on Twitter, but we're all on Twitter.
1: No one deserves uh, the abuse, but but it's the fault yeah. of the abusers, you, you know, I mean... Yep. I, if I go on a, a highway and a drunk driver hits me with their car, it's not the fault of the city for putting the highway there. It's not the fault of the car manufacturer. It's not the fault of the bar that served them. It's the fault of the person who got behind the wheel drunk. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, th- We should not tailor our society to... To allow the the disruptors, the free riders, the trolls, to dictate how we live. Um, I want to introduce a new segment, though, and it's it's one that we have never done before. And I think you'll you'll find it entertaining at a minimum, or at least I hope you'll find it entertaining. But before I do this, real quick, Clive, do, do you do you have a last thought there?
2: Yeah, the only thing I would say, I, I did feel a little bit bad for the fact that he was a young journalist, quite quite new in his career. That's the only thing I would say. But you know what? The issue is with people and the issue is maybe Twitter could be a little bit more stringent about how they suspend people who are massively abusive. But um, as far as I'm concerned, I was incredibly proud about how the whole club reacted to that game. Mm -hmm. And I don't care. I don't care for any daily mail writing in general. But um, maybe a young guy starting his career, maybe learned a lesson, right? Do your homework, be more objective. If you don't do your homework, things are going to happen. The
4: the big boy journos can all put their arm around him in private Uh, and maybe that was a little bit of what was going on on
2: the Twitter. They they protected him, didn't they, Paul? They started to protect him. Which is fine. Do your homework. But, but, Stop, yeah. <laughs> Stop spilling lazy narratives that suit your agenda. Just do your homework. Look at the game objectively. Look at the players on the pitch. Do your homework because a lot of fans do their homework. A lot of fans know what they're looking at. And funny enough, you're absolutely right. Whoever said earlier on, the bookies had his favorites. They're not stupid. They do their homework. Yeah. As simple as that.
1: Uh, yeah. And I, th- So just really quickly, my, my final segment. We haven't done this before, but I'm going to give you guys a chance. This is called Drill or Miguel Delaney. No, I am conscious of how my 100,000 followers behave, so I am using Twitter commensurately. That's actually a Miguel Delaney tweet, not a drill tweet. And by the way, the reason I pick on him, I'm sure he's a lovely person. I actually don't know him, so maybe it's unfair. But it's the fact that he searches his name, he engages with people in the most argumentative fashion, and then any argument you make, he presumes is tribalism. And and he results to ad hominem, or resorts to ad hominems. And I just think, you know, if you want to engage, engage, but then engage... Uh, honestly en- engage with a willingness to, to hear what the other side has to say. In any event, look, brilliant. Brilliant fucking weekend. We beat the scum. We're, we're back in the mix. We're relevant again. We've got our best 11 out there. We've got a run of games coming up where we can build momentum. Um, we get Thursday off for the second team to go in and, and play Cologne. Um, you know, we, we get to rustle all the journalists on social media. Uh, all the power shift talk looks horrendously stupid. And it It is going to be a great, I think, period for the club because I think we're we're really well positioned now. The funny thing is, you know, if if this were a movie, the dark clouds on the horizon are the January transfer window. So, you know, I, I think even more important that we pick up a lot of points and get on a run now to try to solidify what our strategy is because if we're floating around in eighth place, cut adrift from top four come January, it may be time to rethink our strategy. But if we're right there in the hunt... I think we have to persist with this till the end of the season in any event. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening to me rant that last little bit there. I haven't done one <laughs> of those in a while, so I apologize. Um, I, I, you don't have to be associated with it. You guys can disavow that rant. Uh, Tim is on Twitter at Silberto. Thank you, Tim. My pleasure. Uh, Paul's on Twitter at uh, My Pants. Thanks, Paws. Woo-hoo! Clive's on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen to him on the Cast last week, it was excellent. So you could do that now. Um, I think in retrospect, it looks uh, even more erudite and intelligent. Thank you, Clive.
2: Thank you very much, my friend.
1: My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review and then write nasty things about me. Uh, precious little me. Snowflaky little me because I will then uh, cry and have all my podcast friends protect me. Um, in any event, uh, we will be back after the Cologne game. Uh, Tim, you headed out there? Yes, of course. Right, drink a big beer and then put lots of pictures of it on the internet, would you?
3: (laughs) Can do. That's. I I don't think they'll let me return until I do. So fair enough.
1: Fair enough. All right. Well, as always, you guys. The pleasure was mine. Uh, Thank you very much. Up the Arsenal. We'll talk to you after the Europa League.